The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Now, I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness in love when every day is just a struggle to survive. But I do insist that you do survive because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies, maybe even the atom. Energies that could ultimately hurl us to other worlds in, in some sort of spaceship. And the men that reach out into space will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. And those are the days worth living for. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 7th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where... Our subject will be actually taking a look into the future. 2016 is here, and who knows what this year will bring. 2015 certainly ended up being an interesting one. And joining us once again in studio is our panel of discussion, uh, or of discussors, I guess is the word. (laughs) Um, And joining us again is John Thompson, top policy advisor to governments, think tanks, and international conferences on terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, and conflict. And he'll be here to talk about what he expects to be coming up in 2016. Welcome again, John. And also joining us is Salim Mansour, Associate Professor of Political Science at Western University, author of Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism, Vice President of the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow. And Salim, welcome again to the show. And also, and also joining us is Paul McKeever, uh, employment lawyer, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And I imagine as an employment lawyer, Paul, you have a few things to say about the future too. And of course, Paul has been both a guest and co-host on Just Right over the years. And before we get underway, we'd like to again remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz and visit us at justrightmedia.org. So to kick off the show today, gentlemen, it's we're going to be taking a look into the future and we hope that you'll all enjoy this conversation. It's going to be somewhat speculative and it'll be interesting looking back on this episode perhaps a year from now. And um, But in any case, I don't know what your general impression is. I get the idea that a lot of people are not seeing um, uh, the greatest of possible great futures. They're not, they don't have great expectations. They have um, diminishing expectations for the future. Is that something everyone gets a sense of, or is, 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 is that not it, in it's this w- room? It's <laughs> widespread. It's I think widespread. there's a lot of pessimism, especially yeah, in the United States. When you talk to people privately, they are deeply concerned about the survival of their republic. Well, I thought we'd do something different after our 
introductions right now. I thought we'd get off right away and begin with our first, uh, I guess, break, if you want to call it that. And we'll be featuring in this break Bill Whittle, who's a conservative commentator uh, in the United States. And he had some very um, disturbing comments to make about exactly how people feel about the future. And this was actually said in 2013, in January of 2013 three years ago, and uh, was at a speech that he gave at a Toronto high school up in Ontario, and uh, was speaking to a Canadian audience. So here's what he had to say, and I think it's a great starting point for our discussion, and we'll, it'll let our second quarter run uh, quite longer than our normal length for, of these quarters. And we'll listen in on him right now, and we'll be back right after this. So, why are we so filled with despair? Why are we so filled with despair? We're filled with despair because we've been told by our moral betters that there is no future for us, that the future really doesn't exist in the way that we understood the future. I am a product of the space age. My entire life was formed by watching the wonderful world of Disney and seeing these Warner Von Braun animations about guys going into orbit and, and all of these things, and all these things are possible. And my dad took me to the 1964 World Fair in New York City and I rode on GM's Futurama 2 carousel and I saw we're going to have moon bases by 1980 and we're going to be harvesting the oceans by 1995 and we're going to be doing all of these wonderful things and we're going to have nuclear-powered cars and everything's going to be great and there's going to be prosperity and wealth for everyone because wealth can be created out of thin air. There's no limit to what we can do. No limit to what we can do. NASA had an expression during the 60s and their expression was Saturn by 70. They thought they would be at the planet Saturn by 1970. Not 2170, not 2070, 1970. Anything was possible. We had confidence in who we are and what we can do. And nothing has changed except the confidence. Our skill, if anything, has improved. We went to the moon on slide rules. That's why so many young people, by the way, believe that the lunar landing was a conspiracy because the video quality is so poor and there weren't any computers. They simply cannot accept the fact that we had not only the brains but the will to do it. We don't have that will anymore, that future of prosperity and freedom and achievement and rising potential has been taken away from us by this narrative that the future of humanity is going to be a few hundred thousand people sitting around thatch huts while you burn an animal patty and we're eating our sustainable algae cakes. That's not the future that I have in mind. And when you have a big future, when you have an unlimited future, the asymptote goes away. sense that progress is not a restriction on human behavior. Progress means doing things that have never been done before. Boldly going where no man has gone before. That's progress. I grew up in a society that had an idea of progress. In the 21st century, I never wake up saying, where's my jetpack? Where's my jetpack? I was promised a jetpack and I want one. Why? Do we really wonder why our kids have to cut themselves to find some sense of stimulation, some sense of stimulation in this world without a future? Who shut the future down on us? We did. We shut it down on ourselves because we were bored. It's global warming, or it's whatever it's going to be. Whatever the reason is, expect less, expect less, expect smaller, expect less, expect less. In Britain today, facing the problems they face, the most common attitude among the British citizenry today is, thank God I'm not going to live long enough to see the end. 
And that was Bill Whittle speaking in Toronto to a group of students, uh, presenting them with a rather depressing concept of a future. Do you think that's how a lot of people feel? Do people here feel that way? Do you think his opinions were too far out there? Paul, you, you want to start this one off for us? Yeah, I don't think it's a generalized uh, feeling. I think that the people who feel uh, despair have been trained to feel it. I don't feel it. I feel optimistic about what human beings can achieve. I think that, uh, if anything, there should be concern about those who don't want us to achieve it. You know, a little while ago, uh, Elizabeth May, this a few years back, was given some award from an environmental organization. And she gave a speech about how uh, it's folly to believe that man can make the world a better place. That basically perfection is the world as it was given to man by God. And that what we really ought to do is stop meddling with the environment and just live within it uh, in numbers, presumably, that can survive on the planet as it's providing nuts and berries or whatever else we're supposed to pick off of plants without actually farming or producing or et cetera. And she literally called for... Uh, an end to such folly and pride and et cetera in the, in, the, in the idea that man can invent and make the world a better place for, for all and really is calling for a return to the Garden of Eden, innocence and just, you know, uh, living within what God, in her view, has provided to man. So uh, that we've seen in philosophy has been the trend to attack the power of reason, to say that human beings are not just that they're fallible, but they're incapable of being correct or certain in any way, and that every time they think they've invented something great, they don't realize the harm they're doing. You know, you made the spaceship or the flying car, but what you didn't realize is that you were killing the dung beetle when you did it. That somehow this this is um, uh, every good thing that we that we think we're doing is actually causing harm that we are just too stupid to realize we're doing. And so we come out, we come out feeling that, well, what's the whole point then? Uh, the, there's no future. We're all just ruining the planet. The, you know, uh, everything a, a human being does only makes things worse. And so we're being told to just uh, stop hoping, stop producing, stop inventing, stop thinking, stop striving for ha happiness, and just accept our miserable lot in life uh, crawling through the mud. How better to make people feel pessimistic, low, uh, and depressed than to say that there's no hope, we're incapable of making things better. And that has been the trend, the philosophical trend, particularly of the statists who want us to believe that if you leave people to their own devices, they'll only harm others. You know, I, I really liked what you just said, Paul, and it sort of dovetails with my idea on what's going on with this uh, the pessimism that's being taught, uh, and I had to distinguish between a personal lifestyle and a societal or cultural or natural, uh, national uh, malaise. Uh, personally, people can be either happy or sad, and I'm sure there's lots of people, millions out there, who have a, a very positive, like yourself, a very positive view of man, because man can make a choice. Man can decide what his fate will be and are not... Um, um, mechanistic. We're not a clockwork mechanism that is fated to be destructive or to destroy. And I would agree with you. I have a personal point of view uh, uh, of the B Bill Whittle. I grew up in the 60s like he did, and I saw a very positive thing. I followed the space program with such joy to see that, boy, this is a great way that man is going. And I look at a cell phone here in front of me, and, and I think that 
back in the 60s, this was not even thought about. The internet was not even thought about. Where we've progressed technologically in this private realm of telecommunications versus the public realm of a government-funded space program to beat the Russians are two different things. We may not be at Saturn at the moment, but we have a cell phone here that will blow away the mind of anybody. If they took them out of the 60s and put them here today, they would be absolutely amazed at what we've done. But culturally, culturally, we are taught by the left, who are anti-man, anti-life, anti-industrial, that we're destroying the planet, that man as an animal, like uh, David Suzuki said, is no better off than some sort of... um, larvae of a fruit fly and that's the kind of intellectual battle we're having here and we'll always have it it's not going to end we'll always have a battle between left and right between life and death between the environmentalists and the people who love man as a species and want to see him progress so i'm positive but we'll always have a battle against the people who are um, basically worshiping a death cult of the left well i'm a, uh, a professional pessimist <laughs> uh, however, I'm actually quite cheerfully optimistic usually in my own uh, personal life. But um, one of, I guess, my observations in, in, in 30 years of studying you know, terrorism and warfare and all the rest of what makes life interesting is that trouble slides in on an exponential curve. And, and right now, the, the curve is accelerating for a particular conflict inside our society. And what it actually is, it's when you talk about the left, I, I think actually about this post-modernist culture that basically <clears throat> it's the boomers as they got older and they developed this way of thinking and it's, there is political narcissism is, narcissism is part of it. There's this dysfunctional leadership, the, 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 the freeze up we've seen, particularly in the United States. You know, there is no debate anymore. There's just two sides shrieking slogans at each other and uh, no, no real independent thought at all. Um, and that dysfunctional political culture is also present uh, in Western Europe to a lesser extent in Canada, though it is here, and I, I actually fear our federal liberals represent it best. But at the same time, I'm also seeing in the United States and in Western Europe the, the rise of nativist parties. And they're being typically tarred as you know, right-wing extremists and all the rest of it from the, the existing political culture. But look at them seriously. What they're after is accountability. They're after a return to normative constitutional politics. They also want fiscal accountability. And they want control over immigration systems again, because they've seen what's happening on the streets of their cities, and they, they know who fits in and who doesn't fit in. And they're tired of a political culture that is not listening, refuses to list, listen, has its fingers in its ears and going, yeah, 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 I can't hear you. Um, and that's the conflict that's coming. I don't think it's going to be a violent conflict, although it's possible. But we're going to see some real trouble, I think, some really vicious politics in a little while. And uh, again, you look at some of the, the hallmarks coming up, I mean, political correctness, which I described as the, the sort of the new neo-totalitarianism. Uh, uh, but the way to, and here's where things get interesting and hopeful. It's time to revolt against political correctness with disobedience, defiance, and resolution. Sneer at it. Demean it. 
reducto ad absurdum. Ridic Reduce. Yes, so when you ridicule something, that ha goes a long way to tearing a, an idea apart, ridicule. And once we break the back of this insane political culture that has mutated in the last 25, 30 years, then everything opens up again. You know, I think Trump's doing that. Mm. He's not the best champion, but he's the strongest champion on the field so far. I mean, I'd somehow or other, I'd, I wish we had Winston Churchill out there again. I wish we had Ronald Reagan. I wish we had, well, we got Trump. He'll have to do it. And we've got Ted Cruz as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 I would say that we need to be able to separate uh, two things. One, man, as you talked about, um, Robert, the individual and the society, you know. About man, you know, I'm, I'm reminded the great lines of Shakespeare and Hamlet. Uh, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and expression, how like an angel, etc., etc., you know. Uh, so that is the individual, you know, and it is the pearl in the oyster that is the society. Well, what is happening now, you, Bob, you begin by saying, look, look forward in, in time. That is the society, the culture. The culture, I would say, the culture of Malay that grips all of us. There was a recent poll, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal, in which this question was asked, and, and the poll indicated that the number one issue that concerns Americans going into this election year cycle is terrorism. Number two is the complete lack of trust in the government. And then at the bottom was, number three was the economy, the unemployment, and, you know, the debt and the finance. So there is a, a, a sense of genuine anger and fear. And the anger and fear is that nobody seems to have a hold on where the West is heading or where the West is drifting. I would say the West is drifting and it's all got to do with change you know so we have to be able to reflect back where we were look at the future and the present as the mediating point between the past and the and the present here we are talking we are on the eve of 2016 a hundred years ago what was happening in the west the west had collapsed world war one was going on and you can say that you know the effects of World War I is still being played out because World War I was followed by World War II, followed by containment. And so the, pretty much the dominant issues of the 20th century were these events in which the West, even as it was breaking down, there were generation had control over the event in some ways, a direction. And, and they triumph. And so we talk about the greatest generation. And if you put the bookends on the greatest generation, it is 1933, Roosevelt get elected in his inauguration. And 1993, when Clinton gets uh, inaugurated, and this is the last term of George Bush the elder. So this is the 60 years, because with Clinton, inauguration, you are into the boomer generation. So yeah, there you have the greatest generation. You see, it, 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 uh, what are the achievements? Well, they fought the depression and they came out of it. They won the Second World War. They put the man on the moon. You talked about it, you know. Uh, they defeated Soviet communism. And this was a generation not running around with PhDs, you know. These were high school dropouts who came and who landed on the beach of Normandy or and who blew up, the, you know, Soviet Union in effect. What we have is a generation that came to power at Clinton is a generation nurtured by their own sense of narcissism. 
This is the full Monty generation. This is the generation <laughs> that went, went naked in Woodstock. This is the generation of I, me, and myself. You might talk about the cell phone. You know, that's great. And that's the, what is a piece of work is man. You know, and man is infinite in faculties. But what is this society that this generation created? I think that's where we have arrived at. Is West is no longer in control of it. You know, uh, West is now competing in the world that is now global. You know, there's China, there's India, there is Japan after all. Europe is in a sense adrift. Europe it was a part of the West. And so I think people are grappling with the problem of who are we? Where are we headed? So if you want to close the boundary, that's part of the sovereign issue. Yes, we should close the boundaries. As Donald, and let's get a hang of it. Not simply get a hang of what is this Muslim terrorism, or, but get a hang of ourselves. And that is what is missing. It's about ourselves. Get a hang of, you know, where we are, who we are, you know, where we are headed. We have, we have the dropout rates in school or, or PhDs coming out who could not handle what a great child did, you know, of the greatest generation. They don't read. They don't. They might be very good in computers, but give them the computer. Can they produce a line of Shakespeare? You know, and, and that's where the problem lies. History is a continuum. <clears throat> and each event leads to the next. But the issue is, are these things being taught in the schools properly in a way that people absorb them and appreciate what it is that they're being taught rather than this discourse of unconnected events and just you know, things that seem random to people and they don't understand what the big picture yeah, is? Well, what has happened is it was not simply deconstruction, which is the great uh, postmodern generation thinking. You deconstruct anything. So there's nothing sacred. Sacred in the sense of value. Yeah, we, we stripped off all our you know, traditional values yeah, and replaced right. them with meaningless so values. Meaningless. So, that was the, so it is not only the issue of deconstruction. What is happening is also decontextualization. There's no context. So the, there's a great book written in the 1980s, apart from the one that Alan Bloom wrote, The Closing of the American Mind. It was Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I don't know if you know that book, John. Yep. Yes, it was about television, you know, and, and, and television, one of the things that it did, it did wonders. The telephone has done wonders, the Android, but it's also decontextualized everything. So if you're going to communicate on this iPhone, you're communicating in a 124-word Twitter, and that's the decontextualization is taking. There is no depth. Everything is surface. There is no depth to anything. Everything is cosmetic. You know, you take out the cosmetic, you take out the cosmetic, and then you are looking at, you know. That's actually that's uh, one of the problems I think with the internet. Yeah. Never before have people had so much information at their fingertips and not known what to do with it. And, and remember the lines of Eliot, you know, we are drowning in information, but where is the knowledge? And then we, you know, where do we get the knowledge that leads us to wisdom? And there's an absence, there's no knowledge, and the wisdom is gone. And so there we come in, look at the Canadian political scene, look at the scene in uh, Yeah, in, we, we vote in, for the in, most in peripheral yeah, of reasons. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you guys, and, and yet I think that it may be misdirected to blame a technology on something. I love television, I love my Android cell phone, I think the internet is one of the best inventions in the world ever since uh, the dawn of man. It's what we do with it. I don't think that I'm disagreeing with you with no, that, no, you're but not I wouldn't blame These technology. These are the means. No, no, yeah. no one is blaming technology. It's just the meme, it's the know, me, myself, and I. But then again, uh, also, this is part of the aesthetic 
uh, pyramid of philosophy. At the very peak of philosophy is aesthetics. What do we do with our free time? I see nothing wrong with sitting down and watching a rerun of I Love Lucy. I see nothing wrong with spending an hour going through Facebook and purchasing stuff. How do you produce wealth? There, was a, there is a story out that came out again this week in Japan, by the year 2025, more than 50% of the labor force can be replaced by robots. So the labor force is replaced. Where will you have the wealth generation that is going to take care of the, of the people who are being replaced? You're going you know, to be building I mean, robots, aren't they? That's what they keep telling you. <laughs> and I think that that's the fear also that is happening. I mean, you look at it in, in the American economy, you look at it in the Canadian economy, you know, more and more redundancies. And therefore, people worried about where they're going to go. What is well, the term? There's also, uh, I think, the, the, the fallout from the... the the boomer generation that produced the, the dysfunctional politics, and I can say this as a member of that generation. I mean, I've I've watched this insanity develop all my life. But there's also a, a resentment of real accomplishment. I mean, you actually you look at the American political scene, celebrating the achievements of Hillary Clinton. What achievements? What celebrating the achievements of Justin Trudeau. Hello, uh, um, <clears throat> but engineers are to be slighted and demeaned. Philanthropists who actually, uh, I mean, real philanthropists who engage in hands-on charity are somehow to be distrusted. Uh, soldiers, again, uh, shut them off, put them off to one side, uh, defund them. Anyone who da actually does something real and substantial is not trusted. And actually, the real and substantial is where our, our cultural strength really lay in the ultimately. I mean, we need to go back to things that are real and substantial. How does that happen? You know, every time I've been asked in the past, how do you change a culture? How do you g grab that culture's interest? I've always come back to the same very broad theme, and I, th and I think it's what cultures are based around, and, I, and I've st we did a show on it a while ago, and it's the story. Religions are a story. There's the story of Muhammad, the story of Christ. These things well, all have a value behind them, you know. Uh, um, even Western culture has its own stories. Even the TV shows we're talking about on our cell phones and TVs create cultures around them. You could look at Star Trek, like even Bill Whittle said, where no man has gone before, you know, boldly going. These were very inspiring parts of our art and culture through which change comes. And I think, um, you know, Ayn Rand used to always say that herself, that a lot of change comes through the art of a culture. Yeah, I, to me, I think it's envy. It's just envy. Uh, you, you tear down the good for being the good. You prop up the worthless so as to... To what end? So as to create a system in which nobody is entitled to anything any more than anyone else. If you destroy wow. valuation, you destroy differences. And if you destroy differences, you make everyone equally worthy of everything, which is exactly what the something for nothingers want. The Harrison Bergeron story. Yeah, you, you, you handicap those who are able to do, and you falsely praise the D, you know, and you, you, you punish the A as uh, not only something that's 
false and the person must have cheated and, and they couldn't possibly have gotten that by, by way of actually being better or by hard work or anything else. We have to assume the absolute worst of those who succeed. They're all liars, cheaters, murderers, rapists, destroyers of the environment. And all of the people who are not producing, who are not doing great things, well, they're just the victims who are of, of all of that conduct. And so at the end of the day, we should just condemn the very idea that anyone is capable of being better than anyone else. It's all a game. It's all a, a ruse. And we're all just the same down under. So everyone gets the same of everything. Bob, you asked the question, how do you change a culture? I think you just, you just have to look at how we've got, got here today to look at the mechanism for that change. And if you think about it, Nazi Germany arose by embracing the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Communism arose by embracing the philosophy of a Karl Marx or an Engels, you know, because they wrote books and the books were picked up and disseminated. And today, you either write a book or you do another piece of cultural iconic, um, uh, and and you create a a cultural icon Mm -hmm. around which people gravitate and go with it. So back in the day, it used to be a book because no other technology existed. Today, it's Hollywood or um, Broadway play or anything like that. It, it, it's You have to create an idea, put it into the culture, and it has to be um, picked up and run with by but the people see, who support you, it. You see, I think you are conflating two things over here. If you're talking about books, great books, Karl Marx's book was a response to what he saw as the problems of society. But that's over. Tolstoy's book was not with the problems of the society. So you're talking about Russian culture. It's no longer Karl Marx. It is Tolstoy. It's Dostoevsky. It's you know, Shekhov. It's, you know, Gogol. It's no one or single person. About, yeah, it's right. a progression. So, you know, so the culture is these people that I've just named. Right? And you see, after the cycle of the 20th century, they've gone back to those great works of art, so in the in the in the case of the West, you know, uh, Shakespeare, you know, uh, uh, Dante, Goethe, well, Beethoven. Last, last week, Salim, you in your talk, um, we're talking about people like John Locke, and um, John Stuart Mill, and you're referring to philosophers who what became part of the culture because they were intellectual elites who wrote books who got them disseminated. Yeah. Ayn Rand is another intellectual elite who wrote books and is getting a, a no, huge see, following. Again, the conflation is taking place. John Locke was answering a, 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 a tremendous problem of his time. So his great, one of his great work is Letter of Tolerance. We are talking about today what's happening in the world of Muslim Islam. It was a problem of, of what was happening in Europe at his time. He was running from place to place. He was in exile. And he said, hey, whatever is your problem, you're Calvinist, you are Lutheran, you are Papist, you're whatever. And let's we, have. we have these artificial values like tolerance, which actually isn't a part of the Western tradition. But we're being asked to tolerate intolerable people. Precisely. When we really should go back to our older morality. We've been successful immigrant societies for years. This temporary notion of tolerance is a post-war invention. Okay. (laughs) Just on that thought, we're going to take a quick break at bottom of the hour, and our conversation will continue right after this. Excuse me. I'm looking for Molly. Excuse me. Has anybody seen Molly? 
What are you doing? We're chanting here. We were just wondering if anybody had seen Molly Flynn. No, we haven't. Well, who let you in? We have a key, okay? Um, just what exactly are you chanting for? Inner peace and brotherhood. Oh. Now go away. He must be new to the group. Mr. Harper has spent millions of dollars on attack ads trying to convince you that I'm not ready for this job. As silly as they are, they do pose an important question. How can you decide whether someone is ready to be your Prime Minister? Here's what I think. In order to know if someone is ready for this job, ask them what they want to do with this job and why they want it in the first place. I'm a 43-year-old father of three kids, and I love them deeply, and I want them to grow up in the best country in the world, one that we can all be proud of. What I learned from my father is that to lead this country, you need to love this country, love it more than you crave power. It needs to run through your veins. You need to feel it in your bones. Mr. Harper and I part ways on many issues, but our differences go deeper than just policy. Mr. Harper is dead wrong about one thing. He wants you to believe that better just isn't possible. Well, I think that's wrong. We are who we are, and Canada is what it is, because in our hearts we've always known that better is always possible. An economy that works for the middle class means a country that works for everyone. A country that is strong not in spite of our differences, but because of them. The world needs more of both those things. And after 10 years of Mr. Harper, so do we. You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, where Robert and I are in conversation with Salim Mansour, Paul McKeever, and John Thompson, talking about what we can look forward to the future and cultural values. And we've been talking in somewhat abstract terms right now, bring it down to the concrete level. Here in Canada, we've just had an election. Uh, we have a new prime minister, a liberal prime minister. His name is Justin Trudeau, and I have a hard time saying it. I almost always want to say Pierre Trudeau. It's really weird. I, I grew up in that age. But, John, you seem to indicate that you saw Justin Trudeau as a symptom of not the good part of what's coming in the future for Canada and perhaps even Western civilization. Well, uh, I think one of the problems with contemporary society, to go back to the big picture, is that we, we've lost the capacity to make reasonable judgments. And again, we're, we're encouraged to, to go forward on the most peripheral impressions. Uh, and again, this was an election in which the two parties that had the most articulated policy platforms, philosophies behind them, fared the worst. Um, instead, the Liberals seemed to offer a, a return to the past and in sort of the great days in which they governed the country. 
without any thought, without any uh, having to answer for anything. But I think the other point was that what we elected was the leader with the best hair. We elected the leader who, who looked the most good. Uh, nobody was listening to what Mulcair had to say, and Mulcair had a lot to say. He's always worth listening to. No one was really thinking about the Tory platform. We'd all decided that we didn't like uh, <coughs> Harper, and that was enough. You didn't even need to know why you disliked him. You could just invent a reason and, and go with it. And no one actually really looked at the Liberal Party platform. Um, well, there wasn't a platform to look at that I was really aware of, other than these things that were just said in, in passing. Well, there in some was. Of these. Um, and uh, the impression I got from reading the party platform it was like a 13-year-old pretending the last nine years hadn't happened. It was all a do-over. Um, <laughs> Is that a platform? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's more like an attack of petulance. Uh, and, and I think that's what we've seen from this government so far is this rush to undo everything because now, you know, the usual people are back in power. The Liberals ran Canada for 71 of 100 years in the 20th century. They view themselves as a natural governing party, so they weren't offering a vision. They were just saying, we're back, business as usual, uh, last nine years, terrible nightmare, so sorry, all over. Uh, and then <clears throat> it's... I think they're going to be a one-term government when people find out they've really got nothing in the cupboard. I don't know about that. <laughs> Salim? Uh, well, I mean, uh, what John is saying about uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, I think not too many people are going to dispute it, whether, you know, a good set of hair makes for a good set of what is underneath the hair is a, is, is a big question that we have. And, you know, uh, but, but coming back to the election itself, I think, John, uh, going into the election, many of us uh, were apprehensive in the sense that there's going to be a change in government. Why? Uh, as I look back, and I was apprehensive, about, or I was anticipating a change. I didn't anticipate the change that, as it turned out to be. But in Canadian political history, there has been no government that has won a fourth consecutive term. The last time uh, that a government that won a fourth consecutive term, you have to go back to pre-World War II. That was Louis, uh, sorry, that was Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, Mackenzie King uh, had the longest tenure, but uh, he lost the 1930 election uh, to Borden. That was a Depression year, uh, election. Then he came back in 1935, and then he came back in 1939. So he had the longest tenure, but no consecutive four terms. Even Pierre Trudeau did not have four consecutive terms. He lost in 79. Mm -hmm. And then if it had not been for the ineptness of Joe Clark, he would not have come back in 1980. Well, you're quite right. Governments need to be changed like underwear yeah, for the same so, reasons. Yeah. So, the, I mean, going <laughs> in, I mean, the expectation that uh, 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 Harper and his conservative will come back, they had to do something absolutely super something to have been able to win the election, and they were not doing anything super. Uh, you know, I think, on the super. I think there is actually, a, I mean, if you look at what happens in the States, uh, they sneeze, we catch the cold and all that kind of business, but we usually catch it several years later. The Obama thing uh, was in Canada, I think, stifled by the fact that Harper, the timing of, the, of Harper's election, um, and, and then his, uh, his majority following that, there was no real alternative. So, 
there wasn't really an, uh, an option for an Obama. I mean, the liberals were not putting up an Obama when they put up Ignatieff or Dion. Uh, those guys just didn't fill the bill. But here you come along with a guy who's largely a hollow man. I'm talking about the current prime minister, Trudeau. Uh, it's patently obvious to anybody who's gone to school for more than four years that this guy is not an intellectual. Uh, he he knows his talking points. He's being fed the talking points by the bureaucracy. I saw him on TV the other night saying, well, yes, yes, we're going to, you know, you're, you're talking about deficits of $10 billion a year that we didn't foresee. We were we were planning on revenue neutral, you know, raising tax on the top 1% and decreasing it on, the, on others by the same percentage. And yes, it turns out that we got the elasticity wrong. Well, elasticity is a reference to basically, uh, will, the, will the people who you're about to stick with a higher tax find ways of avoiding paying the tax? And the higher the elasticity, the, the greater the ability to, to avoid the tax. So he says, well, we can talk all day about elasticity and whether it should, we got the numbers wrong, but at the end of the day, it's about the, and then from that point on, he goes on about, you know, uh, the greatness of Canada and all these extra relevant things that aren't uh, really relevant at all to the issue. He doesn't under, understand elasticity. He didn't learn that as a school teacher teaching drama. He's been fed that by the bureaucracy, but he does have the nice hair, as John says. And you know, he comes across as a counter-intellectual, at least on a subliminal level. When you hear a Harper or you hear a Mulcair speak, you hear someone who's one of those nerdy guys, always has an explanation for everything, lots of detail, lots of logic and compelling logic at that. And, you know, they're just so full of themselves. How can they think they're always right? But Trudeau doesn't come across like that. He doesn't make any claims at all. He's, he's just, light and fluffy. He's light and one. fluffy, and he never assumes too much of himself. He's humble. He doesn't assume that he knows anything. And so this is the perfect, the perfect model of a leader, a non-leader leader, when you're looking for someone who doesn't offend you with his superiority, someone who comes across as being absolutely no better than you, someone you can take a selfie with. You know, that's talking about the leaders, but don't you think Trudeau also got in I said he didn't really have a platform, but he had certain policies and planks like legalizing pot, like getting back into global, the whole global warming thing and, and getting involved in the Paris conferences. Are these things that the public wants? Because reading the papers, you'd swear everybody loves this stuff, but I'm not one of them. Well, well he, look at the he, Paris he, conference. You've got a, a great big international circus. In the end, what did they accomplish? It, it nothing. Does. Nothing's binding. Well, nothing Nothing about the climate, but they're having a lot accomplished about being anti-capitalistic and, and, and shutting down industry. I think that's what they're trying to accomplish by talking about another topic entirely. Well, the, the, and they're going to achieve a lot of that damage because if you look at Canada, for example, right now, right across country, the country, I'm not saying that progressive conservatives were anything other than liberals, but they... By winning, the Liberals in province after province, which are, you know, the equivalent of uh, Canadian states, and then federally as well, there are now Liberal governments, which are like Democrat governments, right across Canada, and they know it. And they know that they have the the uh, the uh, reins of power, and that their, their moment is now, and they've got to act quickly. Strike while the iron's hot, that's what they're doing, and they're doing it on multiple fields. We have at the provincial level... Uh, an assault on education. We have at the federal level an assault on international uh, quotas on things like carbon emissions and etc. And the overall guiding uh, goal is to destroy uh, capitalism. That's the goal. And to do it as quickly as possible, 
by, by making an all-out attack in our schools on values. I'm not talking about religious values or sexual values. I'm talking about actual, just being able to judge right from wrong or correct from incorrect, better from worse. They're being told there is no such thing as better and worse, and it's all paving the way to more hollow men as prime ministers, more selfies, nobody who actually bothers to think because those people are offensive. Hollow men echo the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist of the time. Okay, so yes, hollow men, but we have to look at what is the spirit of the time. Look, I mean, the the global warming issue, climate change now, and, and, and so on, is an instrument by which we're moving toward one world government. This has been a long-term agenda. It is an agenda in which, you know, there were the World Federation people in the, in the, in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, that is, uh, that they will be, the, they, they know best what it is for the world and they will devise the policy and they will impose it. So world government is contrary to the whole idea of nation states. And nation states are unequal. Nation states have different history. Um, As Europe's finding uh, out. Pardon? As Europe's finding out. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a variety and there's pluralism and diversity. So these are code words which they want to celebrate, but they want to celebrate it under world government. And it's, of course, the Canadian who was involved in this whole climate change uh, scam that has been run. Maurice Strong, you know, that goes back to the 1990s. They were looking for an instrument by which they're going to impose this thing. And so this is what they've come to. Now, whether other countries will go along with this or not is an is a is open matter. They can write all they want about controlling CO2 in the atmosphere. And the Indians have basically said, stuff it. You got your modernization, your industrialization by burning coal. It is now our term. You go and fix your problem. We are going to keep on doing this. And so the Chinese have also said this. But as part of the spirit of the time, they are with the UN. They're going to get some cash flow that is going to come up from the bad guys, you know, who were the early industrializers who polluted the world. And so they will hand out money distributed to the despots uh, around the world and our then leaders buy, and they'll buy condos in Toronto right. and yeah. our, they'll buy <laughs> condos in Toronto or wherever and our leaders feel good about it because they're with the spirit of the time you know you raise Maury Strong and I just want to mention it's it was one of the rare instances he died just a few a week or three ago and the papers actually came out and described in, with all honesty what his program was to use environmentalism as a way to defeat capitalism. And they, it was the only time that those very same writers would actually let those words cross their pens. Uh, at all, all other times, it's that we absolutely need to do this because the world's going to freeze over or melt or cut in half or people are going to find their houses under six well, feet of the, water. In the last in the last UN uh, uh, episode of trying to control everything was the oil for food program that they put up for Iraq. Did not and, turn into a and, and, and Maurice Strong made his take on it. And then when he was being going to be indicted by the governments who were investigating it, where did Maurice Strong go and take, find a shelter? In good old Beijing, among his communist comrades. Yeah. So this is what it is. This is communism was a world government thing, you know, international Absolutely. proletariat, working part class. Of that, uh, part of that nativist revival I was talking about is again about return to nation-state system about patriotism and it's about the assertion of national yes, identities which absolutely. are have been part and parcel of our self-identities for 
centuries. We can't set those things aside. Well, and you know the reason you can't, John? Because there's a human nature that's common to everyone on this planet. And there are some who believe that human nature is to be defended and there are the rest who believe that it's to be defeated. And when you talk about the nation state, for example, the, the, the U.S., that is historically, uh, not so much as much, uh, now, it's under assault, but historically was founded on the very idea that human nature is to be defended, not defeated. And just about every other place on earth, the idea was that we are to be defeated, not defended. And, and by that, I mean that it's good to love life on this earth, to pursue wealth and happiness on this earth. And uh, that was the one place where they came out and said it in the United States. And I think that when you say, you know, uh, the, the, the nativists, they want uh, their culture or they want money cultures. I think more than that, they want to live like human beings. And the United States just happens to be the only place historically where they could do that. Whatever they want to live by, the fundamental, remember, the, the American experiment begins with no taxation without representation. So we're right. back to freedom. You know, I am going to gladly pay my share of it in the common... Uh, 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 expenditure pool that is the social contract you know between freedom and security so long I am part of the discussion but in this world government I'm no longer represented you know and so where am I in this I being the people the citizen and that is the rebellion that you're seeing that what John is talking about the nat the nativism is the nativism of we the people who are sovereign so we the people in the United States in Canada we have diluted that whole thing we have diluted it by the whole toxin of multiculturalism that was brought in in 1970. But uh, still, there are the wedge issues. There's still the central point. There are still some aspects of the Canadian identity. And, and again, it's things like, for example, it didn't become an election issue that Harper could use. But look at the numbers about what Canadians thought about the niqab. Look about some of the traditional Canadian obsessions with, with fairness with egalitarianism, the fact that we don't like to see our refugee system abused. Uh, there are other traits that are there that will be built on. But where Harper failed, it is 10 years or 9 years of government, and where the Republicans have been failing, is there is no serious discussion on immigration. So in the, what is the big case in America? It's a question about, uh, they call it the undocumented aliens, and the issue is about amnesty. So you give the undocumented aliens the vote, and they're going to vote Democrat. And that is where the dilution is taking place. People who stand up for the, the right or the principle of individual liberty are the people who are now becoming the old white folks. The people from the, say, the third world, from Africa, from the Muslim countries, from the Arab countries, who are coming in, they are basically coming in, and this is what the distinction I have made in my book, between being migrant workers and being immigrants. Migrant workers are seeking economic improvement. To their so there's a pull and push factor. The West does attract migrant workers. The 
generations of immigration that took place before World War II were people who may have been migrant workers but who came to North America and wanted to become part of the system, assimilate into becoming American. Multiculturalism says you can be wherever you are. Oh, so you are from India, you know, you are Sikh Canadian, you can tune into your Sikh channel on the 500 channel universe of television, you can work in Chrysler plant and you can get all the benefit of being a Canadian working in a Chrysler plant so long we do have a Chrysler plant that too might get shipped away and you can still remain in, in your little home which is part of the community where you are a Sikh. You see you're not a Canadian you're a Sikh because how many other Canadians understand Punjabi language? And so this is the fragmentation that has taken place and is taking place at such a rapid space it has taken place all under the notion of we are good guys, multiculturalism, all cultures are equal that the fragmentation takes place and we don't want to take notice of it. Gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break and then a very quick wrap up when we return. One of the things we've seen right across, uh, right across the board from this government is a misunderstanding of the role of government around protecting our future and thinking long term. We have, at the Liberal Party, a very clear plan to reduce climate change emissions uh, by, uh, by uh, greenhouse gas emissions and fight climate change by working with the provinces. As was pointed out, 86% of our economy have committed to put a price on carbon with the actions of four different provinces uh, that have taken up the leadership that this government has simply not shown. Mr. The Liberal Party is focused on working with those provinces to make sure we do reduce emissions because that's what actually Canadians expect in order to be good players in the global economy. The fact is we need to restore public trust in our ability as a government uh, to create a level playing field upon which proponents of a project can acquire social license, can gain the public trust from the communities that it'll touch uh, by working in concert with First Nations, Métis Nation and Inuit peoples uh, to make sure the right partnerships are in place and also uh, to make sure that the scientific oversight and rules and guidelines are actually protecting Canadians. This is about not just uh, doing right by our environment, it's also about doing right by future generations. I have three kids and I know I want my kids to grow up in a country as fresh and pure and clean as Canada was when, as, as uh, we remember it to be and as it used to be. And for that to be, take hold, we have to have a government that's actually demonstrating leadership, that understands that you cannot make a choice between between what's good for the environment and what's good for the economy. In the 21st century, they go together. The carbon price proposals proposed by the other parties would involve tens of billions of dollars of revenue for governments. And yeah. Paul, I'll say what I've said to people across the country. A carbon tax is not about reducing emissions. It's a front. It is about getting revenue for governments that cannot control Well, I'll tell you one thing that is I about to, lowering emissions, I have to emissions, try to Paul. explain that the reason... So nice, Captain Roger, to fly all over the universe and see everything. Well, that's got his points, Delph. Like being free, isn't it? Things ahead of you you don't know about? No, a lot of truth to that. Well, the hour's uh, pretty much up, and I would like to thank our panel, John Thompson, Sidney Mansur, Paul McKeever, but I'll leave with this one parting comment. Throughout the entire discussion that we had here today, 
whether it's um, the future belongs on a personal level, a cultural level, a societal level. I think around this table we've identified one thing, and that is that there has to be values, that the world is not a valueless place. And at least around this table, we and people like us are going to be pushing for um, and promoting a freedom culture, a value culture. And it's going to be in the face of people like our um, current prime minister, of people like uh, President Obama, of people like a Maurice Strong, whoever replaces that person at the United Nations. And it's going to be in opposition to a lot of people in uh, the ivory towers and in our schools. But I think it's a value worth fighting for. And I think that the people around this table are testament to the fact that the values that the people of the 60s, the people of that Bill Whittle talked about before, are not dead. And we're going to, to proceed to talk about freedom. Well, Bob, value is not undefinable. The value that we are fighting for here, sitting here, is the value that made the West what the West is, not the what the West becomes China. So that's, that's I think, where the angst is in, in the society at large. When they say that we want to see Lone Rangers or John Wayne, they don't want to see go back to it. But, you know, our society has its own identity. Some of it was John Wayne, some of it was Clark Gable, some of it was the great scientists and great books that you're talking about. Each civilization has their own values. We are losing ours. Well, the thing is th that I want to make very clear very quickly is that I'm talking about not what you value, but the fact that there is value. And Comrades, then, we're united. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever your expectations for 2016 and beyond may be, one thing you can expect in the near future is that we'll be back one week from today. So when at that time, join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. I found an iPod in a cab and I called Apple to return it to the person and uh, Apple wouldn't give me his information because what if I rape him? <laughs> that was their tone. <laughs> so I gave them mine and a few days later, and you know, uh, you know, the guy called me and uh, he was like, that's so nice. And I'm like, you know, no problem. He's like, no, it's really nice. And the truth is, it is. It was a pretty nice thing I did. It's probably the nicest thing anyone's done since the Underground Railroad. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our panel discussion today, which is archived online at www.justrightmedia.org the same place where you can also discover a very different discussion about the necessity and reality of absolute values. Our November 6, 2014 interview with Keith Weiner, founder of the Gold Standard Institute. Here's what Keith had to say to me on the value of gold and the magic of something called marginal utility. Well, let's say you're a prospector and you're up in the mountains and um, it's September and you know that you're about to get snowed in. You make your last trip to town, uh, and you want to buy some bags of, of cornmeal. The first bag of cornmeal is worth your life. If you don't have that, you're going to die. The second corn, bag of cornmeal 
maybe uh, you get a little bit above subsistence, just barely, you know, from barely above starvation to being a little comfortable. The third bag of cornmeal allows you to keep a few chickens so you have some meat in your diet. The fourth bag of cornmeal, maybe you're, you're using that as a spare in case one of the others, you know, gets rotten or eaten by insects or whatever. The fifth bag of cornmeal, you use that to uh, feed the birds outside your window and have a little bit of entertainment. And the sixth bag of cornmeal, you, you wouldn't even know what you would do with it. So each additional bag has a declining value relative to the previous. And by the sixth bag, essentially, it has zero value. Um, what those miners were referring to at the very end was that with gold, that relationship is not true. You value the next ounce of gold the same as you value the previous, regardless of how many previous ounces you've already already got. If you have zero ounces of gold, you, va- you, you value that next ounce of gold at a certain level. But if you have 10,000 ounces of gold, you said then you want 25,000. You know and so you still value it. You put Basically, you put a constant value on it. Um, and that is what distinguishes gold from all other commodities. And, of course, that's what makes it useful as money, um, useful as a, as, as a measuring stick, a meter stick, as it were, for economic value. Imagine in the real world if you had a, a meter stick, and as you climb up the side of a hill, your meter stick was getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, how could you possibly build a house or build anything else if your standard of value was changing with elevation or with height. Well, the same thing is true. How could you build an economy if your standard of value is changing? Which it is all the time.